It's a very complicated business. There's one strategy, wheels up. If the wheels are on the air, we're making money. If the wheels are on the floor, we're losing money. Do whatever you need to do to have the wheels in the air more percentage. Well, Daniel, I'm super excited to have you join me for this episode of Coffee with Closers. You know, oftentimes I'm speaking mostly with entrepreneurs that are building their own companies, but it's very rarely that I get to speak to a man who has influence on hundreds, if not thousands of business leaders. Uh, and you've been part of a great organization and obviously Growth Institute is being where you are the CEO today, but you also are part of so many other organizations. So would you give our audience a little bit of journey as an entrepreneur and how you got to where you are and running this Growth Institute as the CEO today? So I started very early. I'm originally from Mexico. Between high school and college, I had a job. I got an internship in London and went to London and kind of opened my eyes. A kid from Mexico that just grew up locally, be able to go to London and live in Europe for a year just kind of opened my eyes a lot. So I came back to college, to Mexico, and I said, I need to do something, I need to work. So most of my college, I was working for a brokerage house and I started in the trading floor, trading stocks, and then I became a stock advisor. I was in college and I was already managing 20, $30 million of investment money and investing it in a day-to-day -day basis and investing stocks in Mexico, the US, bonds, calls and puts and all the other things. So I started really understanding how the world moved financially very early since I was in college. And when I finished college, I got a job in Hong Kong. And this was 1997. I don't know if you remember, Hong Kong was leased to uh, the UK, to England, and he was going to go back to China in summer of 1997. Mm -hmm. So the Mexican government was looking for a position to be there a year before and a year after. Kind of, there was a lot of events and a lot of things around that. So they want a special position for someone to help with the extra work. Mm -hmm. So they hired me as a financial attaché and lived in Hong Kong for a couple of years. And when I went, I was trading stocks already back in Mexico and in the US. And I go to Hong Kong and I was like, I still want to trade stocks. Mm -hmm. And there was no trading of stocks online in Mexico. This was 1997. Mm -hmm. The US just had E-Trade and all these new platforms. So I opened an account in the US and I started trading through the internet. And that was a game changer because I was mm -hmm. in Hong Kong and I was trading stocks in the US and, and in Mexico through one of these online platforms. So I worked in Hong Kong for a couple of years. And then one day I said, I want to be an entrepreneur again. I had a couple of companies when I was a kid, a disaster, I was not disciplined. But I said, okay, I need to go back to my country to be an entrepreneur. So I went back to Mexico and opened the first fintech in Mexico. Just to give you an idea, when I opened my company in 1998, 99, mm -hmm. there was not even one venture capital fund in the country. Hmm. That's it. There was one private equity in the whole country. There was no venture capital. So there was no venture capital to go and raise money. I had to raise money with friends and family. And I built the biggest or the only financial institution online. I was the first one to put stock quotes and do stock trading on the Mexican market in 1999. Mm. And I had a competitor, a really big competitor in Argentina that raised uh, $8 million. And then he was going to do a bigger raise, like a $50 million. Mm -hmm. And he went to JP Morgan to New York and said, I want to raise $50 million. And JP Morgan said, We'll give you the money, but if you're in Latin America, if you don't have Mexico and Brazil, you're no one. Mm -hmm. At that moment, he had Argentina, Chile, and Venezuela. And mm -hmm. they're good countries, but they're very small compared to Mexico and Brazil. Mexico and Brazil, they're, just to give you an idea, Mexican oil company Pemex was bigger in revenue than Uruguay, Argentina, and Chile together. Wow. So the size of Mexico and Brazil are really big compared to the rest of Latin America. Mm -hmm. JP Morgan mm -hmm. said, open office or buy the biggest competitor in each of the markets. And I'll give you the money. He called me and said, Daniel, I know you and I are competitors. I'm going to raise $50 million. I'm going to go into Mexico on Monday. Do you want me to go against you or you want to be on my side? And I'm like, <laughs> what's the price? I, mm -hmm. I have raised $200,000. And now 
I have a competitor with 50 million. Mm -hmm. So I told him, what's the price? And he said, fly to Argentina and we'll decide. I flew overnight. The next day, by breakfast, we had already made an agreement. I joined his team. He did the same thing with the biggest one in Brazil, Netrade. We raised $50 million. At the time of the merge, we were less than 100 employees of the three mm. companies. Two years later, we sold it to Banco Santander with 1,200 employees and operation in nine countries. It was a really, really big thing. We were the biggest trading platform at that moment in most countries. So E-Trade had like three countries. We had like nine. So that that was a very strategic buy for Santander and they acquired it and then they run with that. So very early in my career, indeed, I after leaving Santander, I worked there for two years. Mm -hmm. I left before my 30th birthday. Mm. So we were able to see fast growth back then. Indeed, when we sold Santander, we sold it to Santander for 750 million. Mm -hmm. A dollar today, it's probably a fourth of what a dollar was. So if you compare kind of numbers. A couple of billion dollars. Three billion dollars. So we got very, very lucky that we were able to scale a company very fast, very young. And that gave us some knowledge and seat us on the table of really big companies and understanding how to do big business. After that, when I sold a company, I took a year off just to travel. Like I was burned out. Mm -hmm. So one day I got to my house and I said, I'm out. I have money in the bank. I have no kids. I got just married. So I told my wife, let's go on the trip. We did like a run world trip for 16 months or so, 15 months. Then I did an MBA in Babson. I had hired a lot of MBAs in, in my company and they had all this jargon that I felt very uncomfortable that they knew things that I didn't know. And they did PowerPoints with numbers. Mm-hmm. I, I was not aware of how to do those kind of things. So I said, I want to do an MBA just to be able to make sure that I know how to do that. And after that, build a company in the US. I moved to Austin 20 years mm-hmm. ago and build a mortgage bank to just lend money to under documented Hispanics. We got a line of credit with Goldman Sachs for $500 million for a friend of mine in California, and he gave me the license for Texas. And we started growing really fast for offices, 120 team members, debt, investment, everything. And then the subprime mortgage went under, mm. and I was the subprime of subprime. Mm. I went under very, very fast, and it was very painful. I fired mm. everyone a week, lost a lot of money. It was a very, very low moment in my life. And interestingly, after that, I was depressed. I was in a bad situation. I probably stayed depressed six or eight months. It was bad for me. Mm-hmm. And I got several phone calls and that's when you really know who's your friends right you, you mm-hmm. the people that call you and really help you bring back when you have nothing are the people that really care and one of the phone calls was Vern Harnish Vern was my mentor he had coached me in the past I had gone through a program he did in MIT called Burning of Giants and he called me and said hey what are you going to do next and I was like I have no idea and I had told him before that I've lost all my assets and I was over a million dollars in debt hmm. so he said, hey, why don't you coach scaling up? And I was like, no, I need to get a job just to pay for my <laughs> I had no money. I really have need stability. And he said, how are you going to pay the million dollars back? And I was like, I have no idea. I, but I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about just putting food on the table. And he said, why don't you coach on the weekends? And every dollar you make from coaching, you put it towards paying the debt. Mm-hmm. I said, that sounds like a plan. And I started coaching. And six months into it, I was making way more money on the weekends than on the week. So mm-hmm. I resigned my job and become a coach. And I've been coaching CEOs for the last 15 years. Companies, some really big, 25,000 employees, a billion, billion and a half of revenue. But my average company probably does 50, 100 million in revenue. And I coach a CEO on taking better decisions and really mm-hmm. going through the valleys of death and, and the dynamics of scaling companies. And that's what I do. And then my big issue is I was helping the CEO, but the rest of the team was not growing fast enough. So we couldn't implement all the great decisions or execute them because the team below didn't have the capabilities to do that. So we said, okay, we need to work not just with the CEO, we need to work with the whole management team. And that's why we 
build Grothisi to Vern and I got together around 11 years ago and said, we need to figure out a better way. We could work with the CEOs. As an example, we had a, a summit in Harvard. We have a new partnership with Harvard and we had a CEO summit with our clients in Harvard last weekend. It's just the CEO. Everyone else cannot go through the same process. So we build a platform inside Growth Institute to really take the whole management team to the same technology tools mindset. So they're really able to scale so they could scale the company. I think that now it gives me more context about why the Growth Institute is really focused on the entire organization as opposed to just the leadership because most, you know, coaching and business is just fixated on that one person, but the visionary has all the ideas, but the execution is where it fails. And if you don't support the people that are supposed to go do the job, you're not really going to get the vision fulfilled. So and an idea good. is nothing if you cannot execute it. <laughs> and if you don't have a team that has knows how to run KPIs and put priorities, they cannot execute and get it done. That's certainly true. And we certainly want to get into the lessons you're learning by having worked with a lot of leaders over these last 11 plus years, maybe even a lot longer. So you had two businesses, right? Early in the dot-com boom, you built this tech company, right? When the trading online was even just in the early phases now today everybody robin hood made it sexy right to be able to do trade from anywhere but that was not even the case and you were actually in countries like you know brazil and in mexico which is not even kind of the countries that you would think of being the forefront of technology and innovation right so you're doing a lot of new things there but that company succeeded but then after that initial success and had a very successful exit here you have a service business you try to build backed by goldman sachs and had all the right recipe of prior success history but that couldn't succeed because the market condition didn't let you. So what were some of the lessons that you would say those two success and failure has taught you? Yeah. So several things. First, mm-hmm. I was very lucky on the first one and mm-hmm. I was very lucky on the second one. In one of the chapters that I liked the most, Jim Collins book. I think this is the best book by Jim Collins. Yeah. Well, great. Mm-hmm. Great by choice. Great by mm-hmm. choice. He has a chapter called Return on Lock. It's mm-hmm. chapter seven. I love it. It's, I strongly recommend it. And mm-hmm. he explains that we all have good luck. And we all have bad luck. Mm-hmm. The difference is who's able to get a better return on the good luck and gets less affected on the bad luck. Mm-hmm. So in the first one, we were lucky and we were very prepared and we did everything right. And we were able to get a lot of return on luck on the first one. Mm-hmm. On the second one, I was very undisciplined. And let me explain this. Because on the first one, things went so well. Mm-hmm. I thought I was a great entrepreneur and I mm-hmm. disregard all the systems, the processes. I was like, oh, because I'm good, I'm going to get it done. Mm-hmm. Right. And I became very undisciplined. And then I realized when the market changed, my company was so, so thin in cash and with so many problems. Mm-hmm. That when the market changed, I was not able to turn around. As an example, with Growth Institute, when COVID happened, March, we had a really bad March. April, we did like six times more money than, than in an average month. We we're very rare. We mm-hmm. responded really fast. We were able to go to market and send the right signals and really do it right. And it was mm-hmm. game changer. Of course, we were in online location. A lot of people went online. But mm-hmm. two weeks after, both my offices were shut down. All my employees mm-hmm. were fully remote. Like we took care of a lot of expenses very, very fast. Our transition to online and remote was extremely fast. And our message to the market, more mm-hmm. importantly, was so fast that people were trying to scramble and figuring out what to do. Mm-hmm. We already had a plan of what to do. And people said, these guys really understand what they're doing. We need to be close to them and learn with them. And our enrollment was amazing. So in the first one, we were lucky and we were very like trying to partner with the best people and trying to do the great thing. In the second one, I was lazy. I was on the discipline, I had bad luck and I got destroyed. So today, one of the most things that I do, and this comes from Vern again, Vern said, when I told him, hey, I cannot coach, I just 
I don't trust myself as an entrepreneur. How do you want me to coach another CEO? Mm -hmm. And he said, that's precisely why. Because you went through something so painful, you have to make sure it does happen again to any other entrepreneur. And that's why we started coaching. And that's why we build Growth Institute. So I think on the second one, I had bad luck, but I was so unprepared that it just killed me. Very undisciplined entrepreneur. And I'm learned from that. And that's what I teach. And that's what I help my clients. Indeed, I have a client that does around 50 million revenue. And he says all the time, he said, you're the most pessimistic entrepreneur I ever know. Mm -hmm. And I was like, but that's my job mm -hmm. because you're so positive and always seeing the good parts. My job is to help you prepare for when things are bad or allowing you to see what you're not seeing. Yeah. So that is my job. Yeah, someone has to challenge, right? Like if you're always optimistic, right? And overly optimistic, sometimes you make some really dumb decisions that can so lead you astray. I have a client, give you an example. I have a client that does around eight and a half, nine million in revenue, small company, mm -hmm. but they have like six or seven employees. Mm -hmm. the, the owner nets like three million every year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the guy told me, said, I hire you so you don't allow me to make dumb things. Mm -hmm. So whenever he comes with ideas and ah, I'm going to do this, and I'm like, wait. Mm -hmm. I'm going to challenge it. And the way that you defend it, it will tell us if you're right or not. And mm -hmm. I probably kill 19 out of every 20 ideas he brings. Mm -hmm. But the ones that he bring that pass the test, they usually do great after we mm -hmm. implement. Yeah. What line of business is he in? He has a, a mastermind. He helps other CEOs do certain things. And he's very efficient. Puts a lot of CEOs together in rooms. Today, my EO, YPO, uh, Vistage, you, you know, there's a lot of CEO groups. Uh, being a CEO is a very lonely position. And you need like-minded people to be around to help you have decisions. Indeed, let me give you an example. I've been a member of EO for 23 years. I've been a member of YPO for around six or seven. And I've been in EO probably four or five months. And this is the story that happened. It changed my life forever. But most importantly, I said, I'm never going to leave this organization just because mm -hmm. of this. So let me give you a quick story. When we started the business, there were four of us. And it was my friends from college, the people that had drinks and we used to date girls together and just have fun. When I said I want to build a company, they said I will build it with you. And I was like, I didn't care mm -hmm. like who was, what kind of experience they had if they just want to be my partners, right? They, want, they were betting on me. Mm -hmm. So we started the company for friends just out of college or a couple mm -hmm. years out of college. After six months, it was clear that one didn't fit. And I was mm -hmm. fighting with that one a lot. Him and I were banging heads and having a really, really hard time. So I joined you, they assigned me my forum and I started going to my forum. And every time I used to go, I used to complain about my partner. Mm -hmm. and like the four or five forum, one of the members looks at me and said, Daniel, I'm tired that you come back and continue complaining and you haven't done anything. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? He's a partner, like he has the rights and all that. And the guy said, no, you have two positions in your company. Mm -hmm. You have a position of a partner like him, a stockholder, but you're also the CEO. And the CEO's role is to have the best executives for the position. If he's not the best executive, you have to fire him. Mm -hmm. But he's a co-founder. How can I fire my co-founder? Mm -hmm. And he said, you could not fire him on the stock. He, he could own the stock. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean he has to work in the company. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, 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 I can't do that. And him and the rest of my forum, they pushed on me and we had a long conversation. It took like three or four hours around that decision. And by the time I left the forum, I was like, I'm going to fire the guy. Next day in the morning, I said, hey, I want to invite you to lunch. You and I need to talk. He said, fine. Went to lunch. And at lunchtime, I said, you're out. I was like, you can't do that. And I was like, yes, I can. You put me a CEO. You voted that I've been the CEO. I'm doing my job as a CEO. You know you're too expensive for the position. And you know you were terrible for the position. You're out. Mm -hmm. And the guy was gone. That decision, you can't imagine how much value it gave me. The only way to have that decision is talking to another entrepreneur that was able to see that and give me that.
So that's the power of the C-level or the, the C-suite masterminds. And my client leads one of these masterminds for mm -hmm. a certain type of entrepreneurs. He's very successful and the business is very profitable. Yeah, if you're netting $3 million as the founder, I mean, you're doing something right. You don't have to be a big, giant company to have that. Imagine yeah. having like a 40% net profit. That's, that's incredible. It's certainly, certainly a unique business model for sure. So obviously you've been at this function as a CEO at the Growth Institute. You started as coaching them. You've had successful exits of your own and obviously some failures as well. So what are some common mistakes that you're seeing entrepreneurs making when it comes to rapid growth, especially from having been on the other side coaching these guys? So several things. Let me get some ideas. So the first one is they are mad. They don't understand why their team is not on the same page. Like, how can they don't get it? Uh, mm -hmm. I hear it all the time. And my team is not behind the idea on this and all that. And I was like, you want them to be on the same page? And they said, yes. I said, okay, show me the page. And I said, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. Show me your strategy. Give me a document with your strategy that is perfectly clear and simple to understand. Mm -hmm. I don't have it. I know that. How do you expect your team to be aligned if you're not even able to express your strategy? So I tell them, okay, tell me a strategy. And I sit down and they take half hour to explain strategy of a company. And I was like, I'm a highly knowledgeable business person. And it took you half hour to express to me your strategy. Imagine mm -hmm. your team. They have no idea. So first mm -hmm. of all, you have to be really, really good putting the strategy in paper in a clear, simple format that everyone mm -hmm. will Mm -hmm. Airlines, perfect example. It's an airline. It's a very complicated business. There's one strategy, wheels up. If the wheels are on the air, we're making money. If the wheels are on the floor, we're losing money. Do whatever you need to do to have the wheels in the air more percentage. An mm -hmm. average plane of Southwest Airlines is on the air two hours more a day than any other airline. That's why they're so profitable. But the strategy is that simple. If you're a mechanic, you can understand that. That's why they take decisions, same planes, no boarding, seats assigned. Like everything gets aligned for wheels up, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first one. The second one is the team. We see a lot of CEOs that they want to pay what they have to pay to get the best talent. And then they complain that the talent is not executing. And I was like, of course, you have the worst people in the market because you're not willing to pay top dollars and attract the best. The best CEOs know that the only way they could win if they have the best talent. And some of them, they don't get it, they're not willing to bring that. So it's all about getting the right people in the right seats and then growing them and continue to scale the team. And if you scale your team, they're going to scale your company. If you have a team that is stuck in the past and they don't have the right things, it's hard. Indeed, I used I have this term that you've probably heard that if you think it's expensive to hire a professional, wait until you hire an amateur. That's going to be way more expensive. So getting the right team. And then it's about execution. You could have an amazing strategy. If you're not maniacal, disciplined executor, mm -hmm. Work. So the best CEOs, they see the vision, they're excited in the future, but they have their feet on the ground and they understand that the execution is very worth it and mm -hmm. it's important. And they're focused in getting the right KPIs and focusing the small details. So as an example, I was with a CEO this morning and he's doing this new program and he has an opportunity to scale it really, really fast. And he's not, mm -hmm. and I was like, why are you not scaling it? Is it because I'm cleaning all the kinks and I'm getting all the data to be able to fix it before I scale it. And I was like, but you know, you have enough clients now that you could triple it. And the guy said, I know, but I'm not going to do it. Until I don't get the execution perfect, I'm not going to do it. And I'm mm -hmm. like, wow, this guy knows it and it's mm -hmm. doing what he needs to do. So every call, everything, he documents the process, documents what went wrong, how they fix it, everything. Six months, a year from now, it's going to be amazing, the execution. Now he's going to be able to get four times more clients. So, so the execution is really important. And then let me kind of go into the last part that I see that they miss their stages. Let me kind of go into this with a little bit more detail because it's important. Mm -hmm. If I tell you of a baby or a kid or adolescent and I said, hey, what do you feed a baby? 
You said Gerber or a baby food. And I was like, would you give him a beer? You were, of course not. It's a baby, right? That's not mm-hmm. what he, beer is great, right? Yeah, beer is awesome or wine or whatever, but not for a baby. And whenever your baby is an adolescent, some companies still feed them Gerber. Baby food. Why? Well, baby food is great. Yeah, but it's an adolescent. It also want baby food. It needs something stronger or heavier or whatever. They don't get it. In companies, the same thing. I hear entrepreneurs and CEOs, they go to a conference, they read a book, they get all excited, and then they want to implement. And I was like, do you realize that you're giving a motorcycle with that 2,000 horsepower to a two-year-old kid? Yeah, but it's amazing the motorcycle. I was like, yeah, but it's going to kill the baby because it doesn't have the power and the capabilities to deal with it. We see a lot of CEOs making mistakes that they introduce the wrong strategy or the wrong tools, not because the rule is bad. Gerber is an amazing product. Even if you have a teenager, the Gerber is still an amazing food. It's just not for the stage. Mm-hmm. So whenever you're CEO for the first time, you don't know what you don't know. And that's where mentors and advisors and everything help because they help you understand what you don't know. And then they help you with the knowledge of what you don't know. And I see that a lot. I see a lot of entrepreneurs make big mistakes because they don't understand what stage your company's at and what they have to do. And we have a model of stages. So when we present it to them, they're like, oh my God, it's like, like having a loaded gun to a two-year-old. And when they realize that, everything changes. It's much easier for them to understand. So we usually try to talk with the CEO, depending on their stage, depending on what type of entrepreneur. And now they're able to build a company that they really like and enjoy. You, uh, as an example, there's three very distinct types of entrepreneurs. One, we call the mountain climber. And the mountain climber, they see a mountain they have to climb. It's not because of the money. It's because they want to prove that they can. And I coach a lot of entrepreneurs that they pass their number many years ago. And they still push themselves really, really big and put at risk what they already built to build something bigger. And I was like, why you do it? You know that you could sell your company today and be very, very, very financially independent. And they say, okay, I need to build it or do it or double or triple. And that's a mountain climber. The mountain climber needs to do it. Then you get the second one that it's a freedom fighter. And the freedom fighter, the only thing that they care is to build a company that gives them the freedom they want in their life. They say, I need a company that will take the least amount of money, sorry, time and energy and drama, but give me enough for me to live the type of life I want to. And those ones, usually they're doing 5 million or 3 million. And they say, well, if I'm already making a million of profit at 3 million of revenue or 5 million, I'm going to go to 15 and I'm going to make three times more. And I'm like, no. You're going to hate your company. You're going to work twice the time. You're not going to be able to have breakfast with your kids every day. And you're not going to be able to go to France for two months in the summer. And some of them, they scale. And when they're there, they realize they hate it. And then they have come back. I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs, they implode their business because they just become slaves for their business and they hate that. Mm-hmm. So really understanding what type of entrepreneur. So I said, mountain climber, freedom fighter. And the other one's the craftspeople or the person in charge or the one that cares about mastery. Like mm-hmm. Steve Jobs was a craftspeople. Like he wanted to make sure it was just beautiful and it felt great and it opened fast. Like that was craft. Second for him was mountain climber. Mm-hmm. But number one, one was proud. Um, I don't know if you saw the series of Spotify. Have you saw the, there's a series of Spotify Netflix. Very good. It's done in Sweden or somewhere. So it's translated to English. So it's a little bit weird because they don't speak English. But it's the, the series is amazing on the story of Spotify. And there's a part that the, the founder, so when the, whenever you click on Spotify Play, you get the song immediately. It's like the song is in your phone. The guy pushing team, his team to get it done like that. You can't imagine how much. And in the series, they come all super excited because 
now it loads in half a second mm -hmm. and they see oh it's mad and shouts to them like they're pushing a button that is loading a song the other side of the world is taking half a second that you're mad mm -hmm. and you're like how can you expect me not to be mad and shouting to them he wants to have perfection and that's why Spotify they own the world mm -hmm. because it feels that you have all the songs downloaded in your phone that's a crafts people so whenever you understand the stages and understand the type of entrepreneur then you're able to help them understand that the best type of company for them is certain type or run it in a certain way and once they know that it's very easy to build it mm -hmm. but we see a lot of entrepreneurs they make a lot of mistakes that they're probably a freedom fighter and they do a scale-up and they hate their life they're depressed they have too mm -hmm. much stress too much drama too much risk so we usually understand the psychology behind the company and able to get help them understand that and it's a game changer i'm blown away to see their eyes when they really understand who they are entrepreneur what stage they're at and what they have to do it's so clear and then the buying and the execution is usually much clearer and faster so i sorry it was a little bit long but no, no, that's a very good good explanation. So I have a couple of follow-up questions, right? So you mentioned about the strategy, like getting the strategy, kind of like the Southwest Airlines, you know, wheels up, that's the strategy. But yeah. the, the common challenge that we have is, and also, you know, you mentioned the people, some of them are like a baby and they're not capable of actually handling the complexity of the business and they may not understand it and you don't have the strategy on paper. So they're not on the same page, all of those things, right? So how elaborate the strategy need to be as the business grows and at different stages of the business, you probably need to have much complicated and I know Growth Institute has the one page strategy template that you make available for people but how complicated the strategy has to be in order think, for the business to be on that same page I think the strategy has to have three things minimum mm -hmm. and then you have to ask one question so let me go through the three things that I put in strategy first the why you have to have very very clear the why of the company everything has a purpose and you have to have a purpose behind why you're building the company and why you're doing the way you're doing that's very, very important. If you don't have the purpose, nothing else flows. Mm -hmm. Then the purpose has to be aligned with what you're good at or your unique ability. If you're not going to have any advantage, competitive advantage in the market, you won't be able to do a scale, right? Mm -hmm. I said, hey, you want to go to a North Star, really big goal, and then you want to get the running. You need a rocket on some rocket fuel. If you don't have a competitive advantage, you don't get there. And the third one is, hey, how is your clients going to feel an impact or what's going to be the impact they're going to have by using your company or working with you? And that's the brand promise, right? It's a brand promise or how you make money. If I promise you something and I give you a better experience, a better product or whatever, different from my competitors, and that's what, what you want, you're going to buy from me at mm -hmm. all times. So if you have those three things, it's kind of the basics of you have your why is based on your strengths and who mm -hmm. you're best and your competitive advantage and what the client really wants and needs and is willing to pay for, right? That's kind of the base. Mm -hmm. And then there's one thing. Once you have that, the next question is, what's your constraint not allowing you to do that? So now you have a clear goal in the future. What's your constraint? Mm -hmm. The best CEOs are focused on eliminating the constraints and opening the bottlenecks. Usually you have a bottleneck. That's why you're at the level that you are today. Mm -hmm. It could be a mental bottleneck. It could be a technology bottleneck. It could be a team bottleneck. What's your bottleneck? And let's remove. And once you remove it, you're able to move a lot more. Figure that out. For example, let me go back to Southwest. What Southwest figured out was people want planes to live on time that's it he said if i give you a seat you're going to be having lunch or having a drink and said oh now my flight's going to leave in five minutes i'm going to walk to the plane and sometimes you have more time you something happens and you get late and the plane is delayed southwest said i'm not going to give seats so people are fighting in the door to run to the room and people said such a bad customer support or customer experience that you don't give me a seat you make me fight for the seat and you know what southwest says yes that's exactly what i want because you're going to be fighting on the door and everyone's going to be standing on the door the plane's going to be on time and you're going to mm -hmm. be happier because of planes on time. they just have one type of plane why you need pilots training just one thing if a pilot fails any other plane could fly any other plane all the maintenance 
crew. Just train inside fighting one plane. All the pieces, wheels, everything, you have it in every airport because if something breaks, you have all the maintenance tools that you need. It's just one type of plane. If you have 10 types of plane, if something breaks, you need to have in your warehouse tools for every plane, for every type of plane that you have. So once you understand what's your why and your advantage and everything, your job is to remove constraints and just start removing constraints and constraints and constraints. And the more constraints that you remove, the more volume your company is going to be able to serve and the more you're going to be able to scale your company. So kind of like what you said, you know, certain questions you can ask, you said, you know, what constraints you have, are there specific questions that you would give leaders on identifying the constraints if it's not super obvious to them? Because obviously you mentioned strategy being one in the personal, in the seat is another problem, right? And then the other thing was just the execution being you know, flawless and being able to execute with the proper KPI being the metrics to monitor. If you have a lot of things in place, but you still feel like you're just stuck and you're not able to get past, you kind of like those different stages that you explained about the company and what kind of questions can the leader be asking to see where is the constraint that is holding me back? Usually when we help execute a company and this comes from scaling up, there's three disciplines of the right execution. And let me, let me explain this discipline and why they're important. First, you have to have priorities. If everything is a priority, nothing's a priority. Mm -hmm. So you have to, in the strategy, think in strategy session, what are your constraints and have a conversation or discussion and then mm -hmm. be able to put them as priorities. They have to be able to measure and you need to have KPIs to have clarity of what you do and expectation also, and then a rhythm of meetings to review that. So the way you do it is you said, hey, I think my constraint is this. And then we say, okay, let's start measuring it and realize that. And we start running in the week or the quarter of the month and start measuring. And sometimes we realize it's a constraint and the data mm -hmm. helps us understand why it's a constraint. And sometimes we realize it's not a constraint. And the way we do it is every three months, we get teams for a day or two days out of their company to think. And people said, I want you to help me be more productive. You're going to take two days out of my quarter to think? And I was like, yeah. Mm -hmm. But those two days of thinking is going to remove half of the other things that you do during the quarter that are not important. So we usually get the teams out for one or two days every quarter to think and have very, very clear priorities, KPIs. Everything is planned perfectly. When they're executing, they said like, wow, I was doing before a lot of things that I don't need to do now because now I know what's important and what's not important. And then what is important, you have your KPIs and your assumptions. And you said, I think my conversion is going to be this, my cost per leads are going to be this, my cost of coach is going to be like whatever is your assumptions and you start testing your assumptions and the data is going to come back and based on the data, you're going to be able to take decisions. Um, I don't know if you know, there's a model called the OODA loop invented in the Second World War. The OODA loop said you have to think, then after you think, you're going to plan. After you plan, you're going to execute and then you're going to learn because after you execute, you get data and then you learn mm -hmm. and then you think again and then you plan again and then the faster you're able to do that, the faster you're going to be able to figure out which which are the right constraints and be able to unlock them. Mm -hmm. Let me kind of explain this, that it's important. Whenever I implement scaling up or help a company, I said, it's going to take me at least three quarters to a year to get it right. And they said, but I'm paying you all this money for you to get it right the first time. Now, it's not about me. It's about your team. Give me the right data. They usually the first time they give me half of the data wrong or half of the assumptions are wrong. And I need the only way for me to get them right is for you and your team to run the assumptions and see the data and start challenging the data and what they do. As an example, a month into doing a strategy, I go with a team member and said, hey, you're red in your KPI. And the guy said like, yeah, I'm red. And I was like, why are you red? And the guy said, I have no idea. Go and look, go and understand why. Get out and give me the data to know why you're red. He comes back a week after and said, now I know why we're red. And I was like, great. What are you going to do different? And the guy said, what do you mean? If you're red, he's telling you that it's not working. You have to change something. What are you going to change? Well, I have no idea. Then they start figuring it out. For your team to get the right KPIs, start knowing how to read the KPIs, but most importantly, how to react to the KPIs. It takes around three to four quarters for a team to get. 
So when we teach them scaling up, we said at the beginning, you're going to see a lot of things. Half of them is going to be wrong. By the time you're going to read your plan and say like, this is amazing. It will take you three to four quarters to get it right. And it's not because awesome. You could pay me 10 times more. I could not get it right the first time because your team thinks and they have assumptions that are usually are wrong. The only way to get it right is to test the assumptions. So in constraints, we tell you the same thing. I'm, I'm not a magical guy that I could say, oh, your constraint is this. Mm-hmm. Every business is different, but I'm going to implement a system for you to identify the constraints and fix the constraints. And that system, whatever constraint you get, you're going to be able to fix. That's mm-hmm. what scaling up is all about. That you figure out all these things and have a model to do the OODA loop and get the data and take decisions based on that. Most certainly. Well, Daniel, I can sit here and talk for hours, but I want to be respectful of your time. And you've really enriched me and I'm sure the audience will benefit from having listened to these conversations. I have one last question. So you've talked about the different type of entrepreneurs, the freedom fighter and the mountain climber and the, the craftsman, right? And are there other winning characteristics that you've noticed in the, the successful entrepreneurs that you've coached? And obviously you've, Verne and you have worked with a really successful company founders, even founder of HubSpot. You've had the privilege of working with Ryan Halligan. So are there any characteristics that you saw common among these leaders that I think could be an indicator for uh, someone who's going to make a really good leader and a successful entrepreneur? The best entrepreneurs I know, they know how to read trends. They're really, really, really good understanding trends and they read a lot. Mark Zuckerberg reads every day. Mark Cuban, you read that even on his vacations, he has to read like two hours a day. His mm. family is really mad. Hey, we're on vacation. We're in Disneyland. I still have to read two hours a day. He's very disciplined on that. So they usually read a lot and they understand the trends. They understand what's happening in the world. And they're able to put a strategy based on the trends and be able to use the trends for their best. Mm-hmm. But then they have their feet on the ground very, very clear. And they are maniacal or I don't know how you say the word in English correctly, but they're so focused on the execution to make sure they execute it right. And here's one thing that I love in, in Shark Tank. If you're an entrepreneur and you get to the tank and you don't know your numbers, they kill you. The good executors, they know the numbers perfectly. They know exactly what are the important KPIs of the company and they know their KPIs by heart and they know how to execute on their KPIs. Mm-hmm. That's why you, in this tank, you see so many questions about their numbers because that tells the sharks if they really understand their business, they understand their constraints to understand what they have to do. So for me, the best CEOs are able to understand the future, put a very, very compelling dream strategy in the future, but that they're very structured in executing. And they're, they're not distracted by that. They say, I know I'm going to get there, but today the most important thing I have to do is this. And they don't get those are the ones that win. So that's a great note to end our conversation. And I certainly enjoyed our conversation. And thank you again for joining me as a guest today. Thank you. Great pleasure, This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by One IMS, a leading digital marketing agency helping businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com. If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, Please subscribe.